Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin, and my guest today is Nick Chater, Professor of Behavioural Science at Warwick University Business School. He's won four national awards for his work and is a fellow at several renowned scientific organisations, including the British Academy. Nick's new book, The Language Game, How Improvisation Created Language and Changed the World, co-written with his colleague and friend, Morton H. Christensen, develops a new theory of language development. They argue that we learn to communicate not through fixed meanings and rules, but through the chaotic improvisation and creativity of everyday speech. Spanning Captain Cook's landing on the southern tip of the Americas in 1769 and the implications of artificial intelligence, the language game is an original take on humanity's most important asset. Nick Chater, welcome to Monaco Reads. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Uh, can we start then with your, I mean, you start your preface saying language is essential to what it means to be human, yet we rarely give it a second thought. We discover just how central it is to every aspect of our lives only when it fails us. I mean, that's so true, isn't it? It is possibly the most essential thing beyond sort of breathing and our hearts beating. I think that's right. And I think it is the most essential thing that is distinctively human. No other creature has language. There are various animal communication systems, but they're very fixed, very standardised. The fact that each of us speaks, to some extent, our own version of our own language, and that the the range of languages is enormous. 7,000 human languages, of enormous variety, from whistling languages to sign languages to uh, more familiar languages that themselves are incredibly variable. The ability to create, to concoct, to cook up ways of communicating is something that humans are astonishingly apt at. And it allows us to transform what we can do. Crucially, I think it allows us to, to work together in, in creative, new, productive ways. And I think if we imagine a life without language, well, to some extent, we can imagine that by just, you know, just the, the thought experiment that language disappears and we have to sort of blunder about without it. That would be, you know, almost every, every step of our lives would be inordinately difficult. Society would collapse pretty quickly. But we can also look, of course, at, uh, at our nearest primate cousins. We can look at chimpanzees and gorillas, for example. And they are quite similar to us. Uh, their brains are somewhat smaller, but they're, they're similar to us in many ways. They don't have language. That's, that, a lot can be achieved without language, but their societies are really very different from ours. Now, you talk about language being cooked up. So let's talk about Captain Cook and 1769, where essentially he had to invent language to talk to people who had never, never spoken English. Yeah, so what's remarkable is that, um, and this is quite, this is, we pick up a bit of a particular case, but this was quite a common phenomenon. So on Cook's voyage, he arrives at Sierra del Fuego and in his journal notes that he's, his ship is going to go to land to talk or speak with the local people, with the aim, of course, of, of exchanging goods so they can um, get new provisions. So they, they meet a group of people who are almost certainly from a, a, a group called the Hausch, who are now sadly, sadly completely, uh, have been completely annihilated. And the Hausch have a language which is inordinately different from, from English or any other European language. So Cook's crew actually spoke a lot of different European languages, but, but none of those languages have any connection at all to the language that the house would, have, house would have spoken. And so they've got two groups of people who have to somehow communicate with no common language at all. And one of the things that's so remarkable is that very quickly communication begins. So one point of great importance, of literally existential importance for both sides, is to establish that they're not, they're not hostile. So two of the, the Hausch people who are on the beach move forward um, away from the others, and two of Cook's men do the same. 
in a mutual recognition of we're not we're not trying to attack we're coming coming singly or in this case in pairs making ourselves vulnerable the house carries small sticks which they in a rather theatrical way it seems throw aside now that is a mime that is a that is a charade which is telling cook's party they potentially have weapons but they're not going to use their weapons they're throwing them aside now we understand that perfectly and that was indeed the message and pretty soon, the two groups are actually working amicably together. Um, they're, um, they're exchanging food, they're trying out uh, drinks, they're um, swapping baubles and, and things that Cooks has, which are of great interest to the house for fresh supplies. So the, the ability to have a mutually beneficial exchange between two people who have no common language is, is mediated by this ability to, to, to cook up ad hoc communication. And I think that's so interesting because it, it makes you realise that communication and languages themselves will burst out anywhere. Um, you take them away, they won't be gone for long. Uh, and I mean, as you say, human language then is like charades. We see them, you know, elaborately throwing away their sticks and so on. Can you explain then how this developed? I mean, what is language? Where did it begin? So our perspective is that, I mean, I think I should contrast what we're going, I'm going to say with, with a more standard view, or the view that has become standard in the popular imagination. It's not really standard these days in the language sciences, although it's certainly a respected view. The standard view is that there's some kind of special genetic feature of us that makes us different from other animals, a language instinct, or sometimes a language organ, as it's called, um, which is essentially a biological system which is genetically encoded through evolution and that somehow is special to us and it gives us the ability to create languages. And our perspective is very different from that. So our, our um, take on what's happening in the interaction between the house and, and Captain Cook and so many similar interactions is that what, what people do spontaneously when they need to, to work together is they attempt to form communicative, create communicative signals, our charades or charades, and when they engage in the same kind of communicative interaction again, they'll use the same. The charade that worked before, they'll use that again. And they may need to repurpose it for some new, uh, new situation. So, and if you play charades with the same people over, over a few uh, minutes or hours or days, you find yourself building up a repertoire of conventions. And very interestingly, the conventions themselves, the signals that you send become simpler and simpler. So you start off doing some very elaborate dinosaur impression. And after a while, you're sort of just wiggling your, your, front, uh, your, your fingers as if they're the front legs of a dinosaur and doing a sort of moderate roar, a roaring sort of gesture. I'm perhaps even less than that. And that becomes, that's our dinosaur gesture. So the signals become simpler and simpler and simpler. And the meanings become broader and, and ever more um, widely used. So you start off trying to mime, I don't know, say King Kong. But then you start to use the same gesture for any, any primate in any situation in some you know, future charade. So the means become ever more flexible and the, the signals become simpler. And that is the pattern. And you're essentially building up a new communicative tradition, a way, a set of signs and symbols that you're going to be able to reuse in new communicative interactions. And the thought then is that if you do this after a while, you're going to see you know, complicated systems starting to emerge. And of course, it's not just that you're sending signals, you can start to concatenate them together. Uh, and you see this in a very interesting context in Nicaraguan sign language. So this is a, a system, a language at the same level of complexity, though small vocabulary as English uh, or any sign language. Um, but it grew up in a, in a period of a decade or two in Nicaraguan schools for deaf children where they were deliberately not taught sign language. So the aim was the children would try to learn to speak Spanish, even though they were profoundly deaf. And that did not work. 
what the children did do is spontaneously struggle to communicate with each other. They, they cooked up signs, charades, um, to allow them to communicate. And those charades became standardised, developed a grammar, an ever bigger vocabulary, and created in a period of something like 10 or 15 years, obviously it was a somewhat gradual process, of a highly sophisticated language. Now this is not to say, necessarily, that human languages came from gestures, though they may have done. It's certainly a very popular theory about language origins is that the first languages were, were gestural. But that's not necessarily the case. I mean, charades can be played with sounds too, so we can communicate with each other, and I'm sure we did initially. In the, and when you take language away, you're going to use both noises and gestures as much as you can. But what starts as ad hoc noises and gestures to get a particular message across will gradually turn itself into an ever richer and more, um, and more expressive system. And that's the languages we have now. Mm. And why do we have so many languages? Why are they all so different? How did they develop in those different ways? I think one element is that they start from different places. So one might think, was there one language um, from which all other languages derived? And the Nicaraguan Sign Language example tells you that's definitely not the case, and there are many other examples where it appears we can trace historically the, uh, situations where people have had to develop new languages and simply have done. So languages seem to spring up from different starting points, and if they spring up in different, different starting points, they tend to work different ways. But they also ramify out in many, many directions. So all the Indo-European languages, so the languages spoken primarily in, in Europe and Asia, almost all of those have a commonality going back about 5,000 years. So in 5,000 years, we've managed to go in an enormous swathe from Urdu to Danish. This vast tree of very, very different languages, which are entirely mutually unintelligible, but they start from essentially the same place. Now, the thing there is that, um, that languages change incredibly quickly. They're part of cultural evolution. Even in a few thousand years, languages change incredibly fast, particularly when the populations who are speaking those languages are quite small. So we tend to forget this when we, uh, when we think about it, English has changed a great deal, of course. If we go back to, to Shakespeare, English seems somewhat different and a little hard to understand. If you go back to Chaucer, that's Middle English. That's really pretty tricky to understand. If you go back to Old English of, of Beowulf, you know, it's essentially a, it is a fundamentally very different language. What about languages such as, say, Swahili, languages that are kind of linked by a continent but are not the same language? Yes. I mean, I think um, that raises this much more general question, really, of social and political aspects of language. There are many forces operating on languages in complex societies with lots of sort of complicated politics and institutions. Um, so another, of course, is, is, is Arabic, where there are fairly standard versions of Arabic spoken in large areas of the Arab-speaking world. But alongside that, there are very, very different versions which are spoken in, you know, by the local people. They'll hear their news in sort of standardised Arabic. And so these sorts of forces are, are everywhere. I mean, languages are you know, continually being sort of moderated and shaped by governments, institutions, um, the desire to be able to, to uh, convey messages across large, large areas. But they always also will have you know, enormous amounts of, of local variation. So the story of languages is a sort of story of being continually buffeted and battered by and enmeshed in just larger political and historical and social forces. And language is not, not an autonomous system. Why is it easier for children to learn languages? And, and could that apply for, for adults learning a, a foreign tongue? Yes, it's actually not at all clear that children are better at learning languages than adults. Um, but what is clear is they spend a lot more time doing it. So the thing about children is that they're 
their entire focus or a large amount of their focus is is the process of, of, of engaging in communicative interactions with the people around them. That's what they're there to do for the first few years. So their, their concentration and sort of focus on the problem is enormous. And the charade-like story about language is very helpful here because the children are continually engaged in particular communicative charade-like interactions. They want to get the milk. They, they don't want that toy. They want this toy. They want to communicate. They've got a toothache. They're trying to engage in specific um, charade-like interactions, and that's what they're learning to do, and that's what learning a language really is. But of course, if we're learning a foreign language, we're, as, as adults, we do it much more slowly. Most of our days spent doing something totally different, and for a few hours a week, we, we sort of pick up a verb table. So the first, the amount of time we're spending is much less, but also we're not immersed in the same way. So I'm not saying that adults just sort of being lobbed into a foreign culture and just floundering along is necessarily the speediest way to learn a language. I'm sure it's a mix of, of lots and lots of interaction and uh, some of the conventional grammar and vocabulary learning and so on is probably the most efficient. But often we fail badly because we just don't do the stuff that really matters. We don't do the charade playing part. We don't actually try to use the language to get our message across. We're sort of struggling with our, struggling with our verb endings. Why do you think we've never developed a universal language? Well, I think there this goes back to these sort of interesting uh, sort of political and historical questions. I mean, languages tend to fracture. So if you have divided populations, and it's rather like um, islands in, in the context of biology, you find you know, you, if you have an isolated population, it will start to diverge from populations in that it were neighbouring islands. And the same is true for languages. So if your communities are quite dispersed, don't interact a lot, then you'll have a natural tendency for the languages to diverge and diverge. So, for example, in Papua New Guinea, which contains about a fifth of the world's languages, that's enormous linguistic varieties because there's very little interaction between groups because there's just very, very dense mountainous forest. Now, the flip side, though, is that if groups become very, very interconnected, then it is possible to have common languages, but we were all very keen on the languages that we had in the first place. So the sense of identity... Partly, I think, because we are such profoundly linguistic creatures, our sense of identity is very, very tied up with our language. So trying to, to enforce uniform languages across a community is an extremely difficult thing to do. And of course, we know that there's enormous and really rather savage attempts to suppress languages in, in many European countries historically and across the world, actually, to try and impose uniformity in a really quite brutal way. Now, a very interesting question... So I think you know, we don't like this. I mean, people like, like having their own language as part of their sort of central cultural identity. Having said that, it is a possibility that one or a few languages might become a sort of universal second language. And of course, the front runner for that at the moment is English. So I mean, I'm a great believer in, in the value of enormous, enormous richness and diversity of human languages. If everybody has a second language, it may as well be the same one. And that, I think, is actually a, a trend that we may be seeing at the moment. So rather convenient for English speakers, but um, we'll see. We'll see how it develops. Now, now, there's one thing here I want to pick up before we go into sort of the meanings of words, but you talk about considering the words for dog in a variety of languages and go on to say how none of them sound remotely like any of the others or like a bark or a growl. And you say, in short, mm. our puzzle is why doesn't each language refer to dogs with some variant of the sound symbolic woof, which would make sense? Yes, yes, it's very interesting because, of course, if, we have, if we're playing charades with someone who, where, we have, where we have no common language... A woof is going to be a good start, something barking-like. And, and in fact, there are traces of that onomatopoeia, that tendency of, 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 um, of sounds, words to sound a bit like their meaning. And Morton, my, my friend and colleague, has done a great deal of work on that. But the traces are quite subtle. 
because there's a different thing that's going on. There's another force. And the other force is actually driving the um, arbitrariness and, and non, the non-systematic connection between meanings and sounds. Now, why is that, you might wonder? And here, uh, a very clever insight was had by a colleague of Morton and mine, um, a collaborator, Padre Monaghan, now at the University of Lancaster. And Padre's observation was, if you have essentially something like sound symbolism, if you have dogs all um, being referred to as woof, the trouble with that is that if you want to distinguish between lots of different dog-like things, so let's imagine we have breeds of dog, then they're all going to sound like woof. And it's going to be particularly bad because when, in most contexts when you want to distinguish a particular dog, for example at the dog show or when buying a dog, then you're completely unable to do it because all the things you try to refer to are just, you've got essentially the same word or something which sounds so similar it's very, very um, difficult, to, difficult to distinguish. So languages have a real tendency to try to disconnect sounds and meanings. Because the thing about meanings is meanings you can figure out from context. You can figure out from context, oh, yes, talking about something dog-like. But you want the sound to be conveying a different message from, from the meaning. So the meanings are one set of clues you can get. The sounds are another set of clues. And Padraig has a very clever argument that actually languages really should be evolving to try and split those apart, to make the meanings and the sounds as far apart as possible to make communication easier. So yes, it turns out that the, the, the woof, the woof is, uh, um, yes, the woof is actually um, just the sort of first step in um, communicating about dogs. But eventually, almost all traces of onomatopoeia have disappeared. What about words that can be both nouns and adjectives and mean a variety of different things? Yes, I mean the, the incredible flexibility of of words is is amazing. So we could take a word about we talk in the book about the word light it can be a a, a noun. A light can be uh, a light as in um, something, a lamp in a room. It could be a light as in um, the, the possibility of a, a flame which will, will light a, a cigar. But also it's an adjective with incredible spectrum of meaning. So we talk about the light brigade, um, a light tank, uh, a light smell, a light blue. The range is just you know, limitless. And all of these things are sort of vaguely connected. So you might think, oh, um, light music is somehow a little bit like um, a light mood. And somehow sort of positive and sort of airy. But trying to pin down what the, the specific uh, essence is is a hopeless task. Indeed, there is no essence. And the reason is the charade story again. When we're using a word in a new context, when we have a new thing to express, we're going to be using the, old, the words we know already in new ways. And what matters is that our sort of creative, flexible minds are able to think, oh, yes, light, light music. What would that be, given all the other things light is? I guess it's going to be something you know, sort of not terribly serious and fun. And that, that is essentially a new charade. We're playing a new charade where we're going to apply light to music. Now, of course, that's now fairly established, but we can apply it to you know, endless new things. And as, as time goes by, the, the, the ramifications of the word just go on indefinitely. And so it's like an endless sort of network, really, rather than having a core essence. Talking about networks and going on to computing, what's the future of language when we look at artificial intelligence? I think there's something very interesting going on in artificial intelligence, but it's not what, what people tend to think. So there's the ability of computers to have uh, apparently meaningful conversations with us is now very impressive. So if you, at least if you're working with a fairly narrow domain, so you're, you're discussing I know, flight bookings or something, a chatbot um, can actually have a tolerable conversation with you. 
And indeed, there are, there's an amazing system, which caught a lot of publicity a few years ago, called GPT-3, uh, which is a huge machine learning system, which has trawled the, in pretty much the entire internet, hoovered up regularities in language, indeed not just a single language, but many languages. And that is able to do quite staggering things. So you can see, you can ask it to write, a, uh, as what has been done, write a story in the style of Jerome K. Jerome on the subject of Twitter, and it will start writing a story. And it writes a story which, at least at the word sentence-by-sentence sentence level, is astonishingly impressive. It doesn't really make sense as a story. As you read further on, you think, she's going nowhere. Now, what's the point of this story? Well, it doesn't do that. It doesn't have a point. But it generates sentences which are, which are very Jerome K. Jerome-like and, and they're bizarrely about Twitter. Um, so that's amazing. So computers are amazingly good at, uh, at hoovering up regularities and patterns in language. But the clue, I think, that tells you that there's something that is missing, and it's really crucially missing, is that they don't really have a point. Um, so they can generate language, but they're not really trying to, they're not trying to communicate anything specific. They're not playing charades in the way that we are. So they're not really playing charades at all. They're just sort of finding patterns in, in language. So I think computers are going to be ever better at practical things with language that matter to us. So having little chats in stylized domains, you know, booking flights, that's going to be very, it's very good and will get better. Translating from one language to another, not perfectly, because the, the, the meaning is not being used. It's you're just using the statistical patterns from one language and mapping them into, into another. But still, that's getting incredibly good. AI is getting smarter, uh, getting more impressive with language, but it's doing it completely without playing charades. The, um, the, the meaning, the communicative drive is not there. So I don't think we have to worry that computers are going to be sort of writing great novels or um, replacing journalists anytime soon. Uh, and finally, what about the future? I mean, you write that the future biological evolution or indeed extinction of all species depends on the unpredictable ramifications of the collective invention of language. What does that mean for, for what's to come? Well, I think what language has done is it's unleashed the phenomenal ability to create new ideas and inventions and to continually build on them. Um, so without language, um, you can invent something Someone may look over your shoulder and try and work out what you've invented. But now, with language, you can tell them. In fact, you can write it down. In fact, you can uh, then find that people are being educated in that thing and trained in it and can learn and invent new, cleverer things and so on and so on. So our ability to create more and more clever science and technology and culture is spectacularly enhanced. But of course, as we see all too well, that creates enormous instability it means we can create um, we can create things that, that, that have the potential to destroy us inadvertently. So I think you know, language is our greatest invention. It's an accidental invention. No one ever intended it, but we, we have it, and it has transformed everything. But it has given a kind of Prometheus. We have now discovered the spectacular power of language, but what we do with that um, remains to be seen, whether that's going to empower us to, to, to stabilise and control the planet or to inadvertently destroy it. We don't yet know. Nick, thank you so much. The Language Game. How improvisation created language and changed the world. By Morton H. Christensen and Nick Chater. It's published by Bantam Press and it's out now. You've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to the producer Nora Hull and researcher Lillian Fawcett. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.